Good morning. If you find your seats, we'll get started. If you would, please turn to Philippians chapter 1. Again, that's Philippians chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 18 this morning. And as always, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Philippians 1, starting in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Let's pray. Your Father, our Lord, God, I am humbled by your servant, Paul. Lord, I know that his life is all about your son and that his life is all about glorying your son, honoring your son. Yet, God, I am so thankful for the testimony of Paul, for the character of Paul, for the life, the story of Paul, Lord, that we see throughout the scriptures and and the heart of Paul that we see so clearly in this passage, God. That whether in life or death, all Paul wanted was to honor your son. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, I thank you for this example, Lord. And I pray as we walk through this passage within the next couple of weeks, Lord, that we would adopt that same heart, Lord. That our lives would be all about the gospel, Lord. All about about honoring Christ. God, be with us as a church body. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we uh, start into the sermon this morning, I just wanted to um, make an announcement. We uh, set a challenge this beginning of this month. I, I challenged you fathers uh, uh, to do family worship at home, and particularly to be singing a, a, a song in Christ alone as a family, and in fact, to teach your, your children this song. And, and I know this is happening because last Wednesday night at Adventure Club, uh, we had Olivia up here practicing with uh, the kids, and it was amazing to hear all the kids. I recorded it. I was in tears to hear all the kids sing the words of this song. And if you know this song, it, it's not one of those songs, as I said uh, earlier or a month ago, a few weeks ago, uh, that says one word over and over and over again. This song has many, many, many words in it. So for those kids to be singing the words of that song means that you at home have been teaching it to your children. I want to just encourage you with this. That song is the gospel, meaning 
our kids at home, and I hear my kids walking around my household right now singing that song as they're taking the shower, as they're, they're walking around in their room, singing the gospel to themselves, hiding the truth in that song in their hearts. And so I want to thank you fathers for taking that challenge and uh, taking it seriously. We're going to have a, a children's choir at the end of this month. If you haven't started practicing that song, I would encourage uh, you to start doing that at home. It will be at the end of this month, and it's the first time we've done this. We'd like to do this every Celebration Sunday. Uh, have a hymn, a hymn that has uh, either old or modern, one that we think will uh, be around, uh, that the test of time will show that these are great hymns of the faith. Uh, that we are teaching our children these hymns and the truths that are within the hymns and then having a choir at the end uh, on a celebration Sunday with all the children. So this is kind of a test run this month. We'll see how it goes. I'm excited to see what happens as we bring all the children up uh, at the end of this month to sing In Christ Alone. The reason we picked In Christ Alone, and I was talking to Olivia about this, is because it goes with the passage that we're going to be in in the next few weeks. It goes with Paul's heart that his hope was in Christ alone as he wrote this epistle from prison. So if you would, today, we're going to be continuing where we left off last week as uh, we started to look at the body of this letter. We got past the introduction, uh, uh, Paul's uh, greetings, and now we're in the body of this letter. In fact, we spent most of our time last week on one verse, verse 18, but, but if you notice, maybe you notice this, that your Bible's actually split verse 18 into two parts, and we didn't cover the second part. Let me show you what I mean. If you would look at verse 18, it says this, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And we spent a ton of time on that part of the verse last week, this one verse, but, but that's not the end of verse 18. It keeps going. It, it says this, And in that I rejoice... Yes, and I will rejoice. Now, the reason why most of your Bibles split verse 18 into two parts is because verse 18 is a transitional verse. In fact, let me show you something about verses 12 through 26. We're going to be in this portion of Scripture for a while. Right? In these verses, Paul is talking about his joy, and he does something that he's already done in the greeting. He talks about his joy past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. Past, look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that's in the past, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Present, look at verse 13. So that it, the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And not only that, look at verse 14. And, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word that's the gospel, without fear, presently. Then look at verse 18. It says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in preachance or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice presently. And then listen to this. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, for I know. Again, verse 18, Paul starts uh, to look to the future. The very end of verse 18, he's starting to look to the future. And for someone in jail, not really knowing his fate, that could be scary. But 
In verse 12, Paul knows what God has done in the past. In verse 13 through 18, Paul sees what God's doing in the present. Therefore, in verses 19 through 26, Paul is joyfully confident about the future. He's joyfully confident about the future. I have three points of the sermon this morning. Paul's confident about the future. That's the first point. Paul's confidence about the future. The second point is the reason for Paul's confidence. And finally, the end result of Paul's confidence. So let's start by looking at Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence in the future. What is he confident about? If you would, again, look at the end of verse 18. It says this, yes, and I will rejoice for I know. I mean, that's confidence. For I know, the Greek word is oida, it means know with certainty. For I know with certainty that, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is confident that he will be delivered. This will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I think that's interesting because how did Paul know this? Why is he so confident about his deliverance? How did he know that this will turn out for his deliverance? To be honest, I, I've always been confused about this verse as I've read through Philippians uh, time and time again. Uh, did God reveal this to Paul? Because it's the only thing I can think of. At some point, God revealed that he'd be delivered. But that's not what he says. He says, I know this because two things— People are praying for me, and the Holy Spirit is helping me. Look at verse 19. That through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the, through those two things, Paul knows this will turn out for my deliverance. But I mean, still, how, how does he know? I mean, how many times have I prayed for something that I was sure would be something that God would want and, and it not come to pass, that God had different plans than I did? I mean, how does he, he know this? Why is he so confident? Let me just show you what I mean. If you would, turn to Acts 20. We'll be back in Philippians 1. And, and we've been in Acts 20 a number of times now, so you're familiar with this, this uh, portion of Scripture. But if you would, turn to Acts 20. We'll, we'll start in verse 22. Verse 22, again, Acts 20. It says this, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. And we've covered this. We know what's going on. This is uh, the beginning to where Paul is right now. He, he, he's going to Jerusalem. We know he'll be arrested there and, and eventually end up in Rome where he writes this letter. It's a four-year journey to get there. Uh, but, but we know he's going to be arrested and look what he says. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is telling me to go there. And then he says this, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that, that me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now look at verse 25. And now, behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul, 
Paul doesn't know what's going to happen to him after he gets arrested, but it seems like he doesn't think he's going to live. He's not going to make it out of prison and see these people that he loves so much, the, the elders at the church of Ephesus, ever again. Now turn to Acts 21. Acts 21, verse 13. says this, and Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, in verse 13, Paul is confident about one thing. He will be arrested, but he doesn't know if that's going to lead to death or life. He doesn't know what's going to happen after being arrested. In fact, it seems like he's pretty sure he's going to die. And he he has good reason to think that because who's the last guy that got arrested by the Jews, handed over to the Romans? Jesus. I'm sure Paul had this in mind and is thinking he is going to have the same fate. Therefore, here's my question. What happened between Acts 20 and Philippians chapter 1? What happened that gave Paul so much confidence of his deliverance that that he can now say, for I I know with certainty that that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance. What has changed? Well, after studying this for a while, here's my answer. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing has changed. Paul is still uncertain if he will live or die. That hasn't changed at all. He's just as confident as he's ever been. He's just as certain as he's ever been that this is going to turn out for his deliverance. Let me show you what I mean. If you would now turn back to Philippians 1.19. Again, verse 19 says this, For I know, I know with certainty, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Here's why I struggled with this verse before really studying it. I, I just assumed turned out for my deliverance meant Paul was going to live, not die. He was going to get released from prison not put to death. But that's not what Paul is saying. The reason this verse has always been something that, that somewhat confusing to me is, is that I just think too earthly. It's my, my finite human fleshly default. When I, when I hear the word deliverance from someone who's been falsely accused and is in prison, I automatically assume it's deliverance from prison. That's not how Paul thinks. That's not Paul's mind. To Paul, deliverance has has a much bigger connotation because Paul is always setting his mind on eternity, not temporal things, not, not earthly things. When he says, I am confident in this, that I'm going to be delivered, 
can say that because one of two things is going to happen. First, he's, he's going to be released from, from prison, delivered from prison, or two, he's going to die. And for Paul, that is gain. Let me show you what I mean. Again, look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, deliverance in Greek is, in Greek is soteriai. It's the word um, could be translated salvation. And it probably is a better translation than deliverance, in fact. Because out of the 45 times this word is used, it's only translated deliverance once in the ESV. Philippians 1.19. 43 times it's translated salvation, save, saved, or saving. Therefore, this could be translated, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. Either salvation from prison or salvation from this world. It's a glorification. Salvation from the the sufferings of this world to the joys of heaven. Either way, Paul is going to be saved, therefore he is confident. In fact, I think Paul's words are very intentional here. Almost poetic. But if anything, extremely deep. I'm just amazed by verse 19. Verse 19 is one of those verses that you read as you're going through your year-long reading plan of Scripture that you kind of pass over and you go, hey, that's not that remarkable. But if you slow down and study it, it is so ridiculously deep. He is intentional in his wording here. In fact, I think he's being intentionally vague on exactly what he means in verse 19 when he says deliverance or salvation. But then he fills, the, fills in the meaning of this word in two ways. First, the near context, as we'll see in Philippians 1, 20 through 24. He makes it very clear what he means by deliverance in, in the near context of his writing because he wants the church to know exactly what he means. But second, he echoes an Old Testament passage in this verse. If you would, turn to Job chapter 13. Job chapter 13. We'll start in verse 13. Look at verse 13. It says this. Let me have silence, and I will speak. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and and put my life in my hands? And then he says this in verse 15. a, A famous verse, a famous quote. He says this. Though he, God, though he slay me, I will hope in him. I mean, talk about a profound verse. Did you hear that? Though he, though God slays me, I will hope in him. Listen, Job had a ridiculously high view of God's sovereignty. 
Another way of, of saying this is, is just Job had a correct theology. Theos, God's study of God. He, he understood who God was. He understood what it meant that God is God. He knew it was God who slays him. Yet Job says, I will hope in him. In other words, Job doesn't give any credit at all to the devil. And this is seen throughout the book of Job. This is not an accidental line where he's just emotional, angry, and he blurts it out. Turn to Job 1.20. We'll go back to verse 13, but look at Job 1.20. I want you to see this because I think it's important. Verse 20 says this. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Think about that. After everything he lost, he didn't shake his fist at God. He didn't ignore God and, and angrily complain his first reaction was to worship. He worshiped after, after all his suffering, after, after losing all his wealth, after, after losing all his property, property, his servants, his livestock, after, after losing all his children, all dead in one day. He fell on the ground and worshiped. And that's amazing. And then he says this in verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and listen to this, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And just in case you think Job is mistaken here, like like he's misrepresenting God, look what it says in verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Listen, just like Job, this is how Paul saw a situation. He clearly knew God was sovereign over all of his sufferings, uh, over everything that has happened to him. It wasn't an accident that he was in jail, in prison. In fact, Paul was... When he was saved, God told Ananias this, I, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's Acts 9.16. Remember when Paul was heading to Jerusalem, Paul said, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. It's God that's sending me there. Not knowing what will happen to me there, but except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that, that in every city imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Acts 21.14 says this, and, and since he, that's Paul, would not be persuaded by his friends, we, meaning Luke is a part of this, ceased and said, this is what Paul's friends said, 
let the will of the Lord be done. In other words, what happened in Jerusalem was the will of the Lord. All the evil that Paul suffered was all a part of God's sovereign plan. Now, I want to be clear. The Bible's clear. God doesn't directly cause suffering. He doesn't directly cause evil, but he's sovereign over it. And if you're wondering how that works, just think of the story of Job. Who caused the evil? The devil. Who caused the suffering? The devil. Who was in charge of the devil? God. And therefore, Paul could say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will hope in him. I mean, that's just the first part of Philippians, what we've gone through, is it not? Paul trusting in the sovereignty of God, joyfully trusting in him, even, even through all the suffering he's gone through. He says, through all of it, it's advanced the gospel, therefore I, I am joy-filled. Now turn back to Job 14, or 13, 15. Again, verse 15 starts with this remarkable, remarkable phrase, remarkable saying that, that, that Job, this truth. Verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet, here's Job's hope. Yet, I will argue my ways to his face. In other words, one day I will see him face to face. Verse 16, this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. In other words, all those who, who do evil, the godless, they shall not come before him, but I will argue my ways to his face. I, I one day will be face to face with God and ask him why. This, he says, being face to face with God, this will be my salvation. In fact, later in the book of Job, he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Job nineteen twenty-five through 26. This is Job's salvation. This is Job's hope that one day he would see God face to face. Therefore, Job says, this will be my salvation. Verse 16, here's what's interesting. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, the it's a copy of the Old Testament that Paul would have been very, very, very familiar with as a Pharisee, probably having large chunks of this memorized in his head. He quotes verse 16 in the book of Job, word for word in Philippians 1.19. When he writes this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Word for word, what Job said in Job 13.16, this will be my salvation. Paul is being very purposeful here. He's connecting his story to Job's. And I think there's an amazing similarities, by the way. 
Let me just ask, can you think of, of two men in Scripture, two men in Scripture that have suffered more than Paul and Job? Yet, at the same time, two men that were godly. I mean, we know Job's suffering, right? He lost his wealth, his family, his health. His wife comes and curses him. His friends come and torment him. We know his suffering. Let's listen to Paul's. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Paul writes this. Five times. Just think about that. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Paul's back would have been ripped to shreds and then healed, then ripped to shreds again, then healed and ripped to shreds again. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and and Paul is probably the only person in the history of mankind that survived the stoning somehow. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from from other things, there is the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Let me just say this as a side note. Paul really cared about the churches. (laughs) Put that in the list. Listen, God's words were right when he told Ananias, I'll show him how much he must suffer for for the sake of my name. Paul suffered a lot. In fact, just like Job, his body showed the scars of the suffering. I mean, I'm guessing from head to toe. Galatians 6, 17, Paul writes this, For for now on, let, let no one cause me trouble, for I, Paul, this is I, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Scars. Marks of Jesus are all the scars from the beatings, whippings, and stoning. I, I'm just assuming, and I think this is a fair assumption, as Paul got older, he probably couldn't sleep at night because of the permanent damage to his body. And listen, just like Job, Paul was a righteous man. He wasn't perfect, he was a man, but he was a godly man. He wasn't getting punished, in other words, for some unrighteous deed or sin. And not only did he, did he suffer as a, a righteous man, as a worshiper of God, but, but just like Job, he had brothers fellow believers, people claiming to to follow Christ, afflicting him with their words. Look at Philippians 1.17. It says the former, this is brothers, we've talked about this, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but, but, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. As we have learned last week, that these brothers... There are people who, who proclaim Christianity, who are, who are preaching Christ. They're preaching a, a pure gospel. They're pre- preaching Christ accurately, but at the same time, they were afflicting Paul in his imprisonment. With, with one side of their mouth, they're speaking 
uh, the gospel clearly with the other side of the mouth, they're probably saying things like this. See, he's finally got what he deserves. This imprisonment proves that God is against Paul. Obviously, God is punishing Paul for some secret sin that he has. He must be in sin. What does that sound like? Job's three friends. Listen, Paul is connecting his suffering to Job. And just like Job, Paul finds hope in one truth. For I know, for I know that through your prayers and and the help of the Spirit of Christ, or Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. Either salvation from prison or salvation from this sin-filled world. Either way, I'm going to be saved. This was Paul's hope. And this is why he was so joyful. I mean, just think about Paul for a second. Like, you couldn't rob him of his joy. Throw him in prison— for Christ, I'm joy-filled. Take his life, gain, joy-filled. I mean, what could you do to the man? Nothing. He was joy-filled because of it. At the end of verse 18, it says, yes, and I will rejoice. He doesn't know his fate, life or death, but he's going to rejoice because, for I know with confidence that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul was just always thinking eternally. I mean, I could just learn from this. I mean, I struggle with this. He takes everything, and, and he, he thinks of it through the lens of eternity. This is why he can say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light and momentary affliction. Let me just stop there. I am amazed by that every time I read it. All the suffering Paul has gone through, he calls it light and momentary. It's incredible. In fact, there's a couple verses in Scripture that, that allude to how amazing heaven is going to be, and it's, this is one of the main ones. Because listen to what he says. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond comparison. You want to weigh all the suffering I've gone through with, with what heaven's going to be like? Not even comparable. You want to weigh what, what heaven's going to be like with all the evils we see in this world? Don't even compare it. I mean, that's saying a lot about how amazing heaven's going to be. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Therefore, in his suffering, he looks into the future, and Paul can confidently say, yes, I will rejoice. And that's my first point this morning. Paul was confident in his deliverance and his salvation. Now let's look at the reason for this confidence. The second point this morning, the reason for Paul's confidence Look at Philippians 1.19 again. Paul gives us two reasons for his confidence in verse 19. Again, he says, For I know, I am confident, for I know that, two things, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
this will turn out for my deliverance or salvation. Now, the help of the Holy Spirit is not surprising to me. So let's start there. Again, verse 19. Paul is just really, I think, applying what he's already wrote in verse 6. Remember verse 6? We spent a lot of time there. Let's look at it. Think about it. Look at verse 6. This is what he says. And I'm sure of this. Again, we see that word. Something that Paul knows. He's confident in. I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, what God starts, he will complete. This is a doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And once you're saved, you're going to make it. God's going to make sure you persevere. I like the uh, preservation of the saints. Maybe that's a better title. And and Paul knows this. He knows this truth. That's why he writes in verse 6. But he also knows it's true for him. What God started in Paul's life on the road to Damascus, he was going to complete. And Paul was confident in that. He was confident in that. Not in his own ability to make it to heaven. Not in his own ability to stand strong under persecution. Not in his own ability to keep himself saved. No, no, Paul was confident because God will complete what he started. And one of the ways God promises this is, is through the help of the Spirit. How he completes this promise. Paul knows this. In, in verse 19, he says, By the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ... This will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I'm guessing Paul found hope in Jesus' own words, and maybe that's why he says the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Because in John 14, 16, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Paul, Paul knew this. He probably had these words in his mind from Jesus. He knew he was given the spirit of truth, therefore he wasn't afraid. He knew he wouldn't, uh, he would be delivered. In fact, I really think Paul probably had Matthew ten nineteen in his mind when he was sitting there in prison where Jesus says, when, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you will speak or what you will, are to say, for, for what you are to speak will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I mean, and that's an amazing promise. And I'm guessing Paul had that in the back of his mind. Therefore, it's not surprising that Paul could say, For I know that through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. In, in other words, the Spirit will give me the words. The Spirit will preserve me till the end. What God started, he will complete. That, that's not surprising to me, that, that he would point to the Spirit for the reason of his confidence. What is surprising is what he says just before that. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. I mean, that's... That's pretty incredible. I mean, just stop and think about that for a second. Let me ask a question. Is prayer powerful? Is prayer important? Paul says, For I know confidently 
for I know that through your prayers, a, a local church, a church body, not church universal, he's talking about the, the Philippian church, a church body, through your prayers, men that he knew, through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance, my salvation. He puts, think about this, he puts the prayers of this church, a local church, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And he says, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit. I mean, just think about that. Again, let me ask. Do you think prayer is powerful? Listen, if you, you are praying for a wayward child, maybe a child that you're not in communication with anymore, or an unsaved coworker or a family member, or maybe a spouse, or, 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 or let me just say this. If you're praying, just praying for another brother that, that, that they will persevere, listen to what Paul says. For I know that through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance. Remember, that's salvation. That's, that's glorification. Paul has been justified. He's being sanctified. One day he'll be saved in, in the glorification sense. That he'll make it to heaven. That he'll see God face to face. Paul, the apostle Paul, is saying, I know I'm going to make it, be delivered, be saved because of the prayers of this faithful church. Church of Philippi. Talk about a verse that shows the importance of prayer. But you may be asking, well, what about God's sovereignty? Doesn't the Bible teach once saved, always saved? Yes. God is sovereign over salvation from beginning to end. So do our prayers really matter then if God's sovereign over our salvation from beginning to end? How could Paul say, through your prayers I'll be saved, and then at the same time in verse 6 say that, that what God has started, he will complete? It seems like Paul is speaking out both ends of his mouth. Well, verse 19 is once again just a perfect example of how man's responsibility and God's sovereignty just go hand in hand. I don't know how they go hand in hand. It's a mystery. But the Bible proclaims both. Remember Philippians 1.6, it says this. And I am sure of this, again, Paul's confident of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This verse just proclaims, it screams the sovereignty of God. Let me ask a question. How did God begin a good work in Paul's life? Through prayer. Remember Stephen's prayer in Acts 7. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen prayed that of the men that were stoning him, and, and one of the men that was there was Paul, and, and God did not hold that sin against him. And how is God going to, to complete the work in Paul? Through prayer. Through your prayers, this will turn out for my salvation. Does this mean God is waiting for our prayers before he plans and acts? No, not at all. Does this mean our prayers don't really matter because God has already determined what will happen? No, not at all. In fact, Galatians 1.15, Paul writes this, 
But when he, that's God, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. Paul was set apart before he was born, yet it was through Stephen's prayer that he was saved. So what is it? Was Paul saved because of God's sovereign plan or because of Stephen's faithful prayer? Yes. Listen to this. God saved Paul by his sovereign grace. Meaning all the glory goes to God. He planned it not just before Paul was born, but from eternity past. But it was also God's plan to save Paul through Stephen's prayer. Now, how that works, I have no idea. But listen, this is also how God is going to deliver Paul. For I know that through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance. Therefore, Paul was confident for two reasons. He was confident through the prayers, through the faithful prayers of this local church, and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, through, through those two things, Paul, Paul can confidently say, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, before we move on to the next point, I want to say this again, just because it's, it's that important. Prayer is powerful. It's powerful. Don't neglect it. Don't downplay it. Let me give you just a personal testimony. As a pastor, these last few weeks, I've just felt so much spiritual warfare all around me. And on a number of fronts, it's not just one thing or another. It just seems like it's been nonstop. I, I can say this. This last week, it's felt like a month. I have been preaching for five years now in this pulpit, and before that, for 10 years, uh, teaching Sunday morning with the, the high schoolers, uh, preaching up here uh, pretty often, and I've never, never had to work all day Sunday to get a sermon done, or Saturday to get a sermon done, besides yesterday. Spiritual warfare, but I know two things are preserving me through it. The help of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the church. This church. I want you to hear what Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 18. This is the very end of the armor of God passage. He, he writes this in verse 18. He says this, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplications, to that end, keep alert with, with all perseverance, making supplications for, for all the saints. And then Paul says this in verse 19, And also for me. Pa- Paul is asking the church as he's in prison, Pray for me. Church in Ephesus, just pray for me, please. Pray for me that, that, that my, the words may be given to me in, in, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now listen, I, I'm not equating my life to Paul at all. Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I mean, I'm not an apostle. I, I'm not in prison. I have never suffered anything like Paul has suffered. I am, I am nowhere close to the man Paul was. But I know this. So many of you are praying for me personally. In fact, 
Last week I had a couple. They're in first service, so I can talk about them. Come up to me after the service and say, hey, we pray for you every day, Nathan. But, but I'm ashamed to say I don't know your wife's name or your children's name. Can I get their name so we can pray for them every single day too? You know how much that means? Let me just take this opportunity to thank you. It sustains me. It sustains not just me, but our leadership, our whole elder board. We are so thankful for your faithfulness. Prayer is what gave Paul confidence. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And and this brings me to our last point, and I know you're thinking, Nathan, we're never going to get out today. I'll be quick. The end result of Paul's confidence. Verse 20. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether... And here where he, is where he finally tells you what he means by deliverance. Whether by life or by death. Let me just read what one commentator wrote on this. He wrote this. The very last phrase in verse 20 alerts us to the shocking thought that Paul's deliverance does not depend on whether he lives or dies. And you know what? Because of this, because Paul knows he will be delivered, whether life or death. Because of this, he is joy-filled. He is joy-filled. As long as Christ is honored, he is joy-filled. Therefore, the end results of Paul's confidence is that, that Christ will be honored. And because this, this was Paul's passion, He was joy-filled. Paul says, in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And he knows Christ will be honored because God works out all things. Works out all things for those that, all things for good for those that love him. Who are called according to his purpose, which is his glory. We'll pick up this thought again next week as we continue walking through this passage. But but as for today, here are my three points. Paul's confidence about the future, that he will be delivered. He's confident about that, that he will be delivered. The reason for that confidence is is two things, the prayers of the church and, and the help of the Spirit. And finally, the result, the end result of Paul's confidence is that whether by life or by death, Christ will be honored and and in that he rejoices. Now let me end today by saying this. You can have that same confidence too. About the future. Just joy-filled about the future. Have that same confidence Paul had about the future. You know, last week I 
preached a lot about the gospel, and then I had a faithful brother come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you should share the gospel when you preach about the gospel. So here it goes. If you're not a Christian this morning, the Bible is clear. You are born in sin. In fact, all man is born into sin. We have a sin nature. And that's bad. It's not good. Because God is holy. And in his holiness, he hates sin. He hates sin, which is your nature. And therefore, there's a separation between sinful man and a holy God. The Bible even says that God's wrath is aimed at you. Ephesians 2 say, says that, that we are children destined for wrath. But here's the good news. Out of God's love, he sent his son, Jesus, fully man and fully God. He lived a perfect life, completely obedient to his father, completely righteous, completely holy. He, he took our place on the cross. He took our punishment for sin that we deserve. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And listen to this. The Bible says that whoever believes in him will be saved. And we know this is true because on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead, proving that he has conquered both death and sin. Therefore, if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you should have absolutely no confidence about your future. In fact, you are heading to the wrath of God. Salvation is only through faith in Christ. It's salvation by grace alone, meaning a free gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot do good works to get it. Through grace alone, through faith alone, it's only trusting in Jesus and believing in him, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, the time is now. Put your faith in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, my, my heart is heavy, Lord. My, my spirit is just burdened, Lord. That we as a church, Lord, would be faithful to your calling. That we would be eternally minded, willing to sacrifice everything for the gospel, for your glory, Lord. That we would be serious about getting the gospel message right. Proclaiming it clearly. Proclaiming it boldly. That we would go outside these four walls and, and preach the good news to those, Lord, that are destined for wrath. God, I pray for anyone that's listening to me right now, Lord, that has never trusted in you. That hears that word wrath and anger and even hatred, Lord, and, and is scared by those things. Lord, I pray that 
they would know that you are a loving God, that you sent your son, Lord, and, and that there's salvation through him, that if they would turn from their sins and trust in him, they will be saved. God, I pray for that. Let that message be heard clearly. In your son's name we pray, amen.